0: Amen. Thank you, Josh. Good to be with you all again. I'm excited to get to the good news in the book of Romans, but I'm supposed to say something about myself first. So, my name is Chris Helding. Uh, I was the, the first pastoral resident here back in 2018 through 2020. Uh, and it was uh, an amazing time. I'm so thankful for all that you invested in us when we were here. Um, a lot has changed since then. Uh, so I'm still married to Morgan. We have another baby who uh, did not exist when we were here, so my daughter Rhoda is going to turn two in December, and my son Ezra, who you know of, is going to turn four in December, and we have another baby on the way in January, so we've been very blessed in that way. Uh, A lot has also changed in terms of location, so uh, we were in Wisconsin for uh, just under a year where I was an interim associate pastor at the church that I went to during college, and then since then, we've moved out to New Jersey. I'm at the, the home church of Stephen D. DiMizio, your, your newest resident. Uh, it's a great privilege to serve there at Montvale Evangelical Free Church in Montvale, New Jersey. Uh, we're just about, uh, half an hour away from the, from New York City, or an hour and a half, depending on the traffic. So, uh, it's, it's been great so far. I'm, I'm the next-gen pastor there, which means that, uh, I serve the youth, uh, the children, um, so I, I teach to middle schoolers and high schoolers every week, so I think you all will be a little bit easier um, but just to make me feel at home, if you could, like every once in a while, if somebody could just raise their hand as if you have a really important question, and then i 'll call on you and you 'll just like tell a random story about your dog that that would really just help me feel comfortable um, and keep my train of thought right where it 's supposed to be. Uh, but really, it is it is a great privilege uh, to get to preach every week to students and also to invest in families and, and children and also get to uh, to share the pulpit as well. I, I do get a chance to preach fairly regularly, and so it's a great privilege, and I'm excited to preach to you today. Um, one last thing I just wanted to say in regard to the residency program Um we're just so thankful for the investment of, of the pastors and staff here, but also for each one of you. And some of you weren't weren't here, um, but you should know that uh those who were here uh just made us feel so welcomed. Um it's sort of our our image in our mind when we think of what church can be and what church should be, is uh the way that we felt when we were here, and that was that this was a home. And this was uh, a place where we felt welcome, we felt valued, and we felt really supported, and, um, and it served us well as, we, as we've continued in ministry from here. So just know that nothing that you do for these residents is wasted. Uh, I, we may not remember all of your names, and I apologize in advance, but we do remember the way that you made us feel and the way that you welcomed us and uh, the random people who, who prayed for us. Before the service uh, who welcomed us into their homes all of that uh, is is part of uh, the way that you Contribute to building up the body in love and, and supporting your pastors. So thank you so much All right, so let's get to the book of Romans Romans chapter 8 So last week uh, the first part of Romans chapter 8 it ended with a really comforting truth It's that if we've trusted in Christ, then we're children of God We get to be part of God's family And that means we're heirs There's an inheritance that's coming for us. We're going to inherit glory. But along with that, there was also a bit of an unsettling truth. If we look back in Romans 8, verses 16 to 17, this is what it says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Provided we suffer. You know, it was was all good news until he kind of slipped that in there. You won't be spared from suffering because you're a Christian. In fact, because you're a Christian, suffering is guaranteed. We go the way of our master. Suffering and then glory. Suffering is expected, but that doesn't make it easy. It's difficult. The trials we face in this life, it can shake our faith. It can make us ask, why? like Why, God, why does it have to be this way? Why can't we skip the suffering part and get to the glory, as Josh mentioned? Today's passage, it doesn't exactly give us an explanation for suffering. It doesn't answer that why question that we ask. But it does give us the encouragement we need in order to face suffering. That question, uh, there's a question that seems to lie behind everything that The Apostle Paul says in this next section of the letter to the Romans. The question is this. How can we endure suffering as we wait for glory? If we have to suffer on our way to glory, how can we face it? How can we endure it as Christians faithfully? Maybe you're asking that yourself today. There's probably a specific source of pain in your life that comes to mind when we talk about suffering. How can you face it faithfully? Well, Paul says the key is to remember three promises as we endure suffering and wait for glory. So we'll see three promises in our passage today. But first, let's read our passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. Do you all stand during this? I think we stand. Let's stand. I like that. We don't do that at my church. Romans 8, 18 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in this passage... Paul gives us three promises to remember as we endure suffering and wait for glory. The first promise comes in that first paragraph, verses 18 to 25. It's that we're guaranteed a glory that makes our suffering look small. We're guaranteed a glory that makes our suffering look small. Paul begins this passage with probably one of the most audacious claims in the entire Bible. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that we'll inherit is so good that our present suffering is nothing. It's, it's not a drop on the ocean. It's not a feather on the scale. And I think if you've ever truly suffered, then that claim should be a little bit shocking, a little bit offensive even. But it's true. Our suffering is small in light of eternity. And you may be thinking, especially if you're suffering right now, you may be thinking, what what does this guy know about suffering? What does he know about my suffering? You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've suffered. You have no idea. How can you say that it's small and insignificant? And while it may be true that I don't know what you've gone through, I don't know the pain you're feeling, and maybe I never could. God knows, and God understands. And he inspired these words, knowing exactly what you've gone through and what you will go through. And God knows suffering from experience. Jesus lived it. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it says in Isaiah 53. And the Apostle Paul, the human author of this text, He may not have known your situation, but he knew suffering. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 that he and his fellow Christians were so utterly burdened beyond their strength that we despaired of life itself. Maybe you too are feeling burdened with something today. And the Bible doesn't make light of your pain. It doesn't minimize your pain, and neither do I. But despite how you're feeling today, despite how you felt in your darkest hour, it's possible by faith to come to a place where your suffering looks small. It's possible to think like the Apostle Paul, who wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4 a few chapters later than that quote I just mentioned. He said, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Not worth comparing. It's that much greater. If you're suffering, even to the point of despairing and losing heart, the solution, according to the Bible, is not to ignore your your pain, not to try to numb it, not to try to distract yourself from it, not to pretend like it's not there. And it's not real. The solution is to fix your eyes on a glory so great that it makes your suffering look small. A glory so weighty that your affliction feels light. Glory so everlasting your affliction looks momentary. That's the truth. In today's passage in Romans, God is trying to to help us step back and see the big picture. To get a proper perspective on our suffering, without making light of it, he's telling you the truth about your suffering. It looks bigger right now than it really is. Right now, your present suffering may seem larger than your future glory, but that's just because it's right in your freight, right in front of you. It's right in your face, and things look bigger when they're closer. Tell me this. Which is larger, the sun or the moon? The sun, right? We all believe the sun is bigger. In fact, its diameter is 400 times the diameter of the moon. And in terms of mass, it's 27 million times the mass of the moon. It is weighty. The moon wouldn't be a feather on the scale. But have you ever seen a total solar eclipse? or at least you know that they exist, right? Then you know that it's possible for the moon to look as big as the sun, at least for a time. The moon is so much closer that it blocks out the light of the sun and everything goes dark. The moon looks large, but that's only because it's right in our face. The same is true of our suffering. And there's one more astronomy fact that you should know. The moon is actually slowly drifting away from the earth at about 3.8 centimeters per year And that means it will look smaller over time And that means that at some time in the future a few hundred million years in the future Total solar eclipses will never occur again The moon will not be able to block out the light of the sun It'll be so distant that we'll see it for what it really is small We're destined for a glory incomparably greater than our suffering. And there will come a time when we fully inherit that glory and we see our suffering for what it is, small. But even now, we can draw encouragement from this promise. We can believe in the same way that we believe the sun is larger than the moon. We can believe the truth that our glory will be incomparably greater than our present suffering. And the rest of this first paragraph, Paul backs up this audacious claim. He says this future glory that's ours, it's guaranteed. And we know because we're part of a bigger story. The story of all of creation. And we know how that story ends. Verse 19 says this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the the whole universe is just waiting with bated breath for us to be revealed in glory, for us to be resurrected and receive our resurrection bodies and receive all of the things promised to us by God when we see him face to face. The fate of creation is tied to our fate as Christians. It's linked. As verse 21 says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So our glory will mean freedom for creation itself. When we are fully redeemed and freed from sin and all of its effects, then creation will be freed from the brokenness that resulted from sin as well. It will be redeemed with us. When we are made whole in body and mind and soul, then creation will be made whole as well. We in our world will be glorified together. But until then, Paul says, we groan together. As if we're in the pains of childbirth. That's what he says in verses 22 to 23. So how is the creation groaning? How is it in bondage to corruption? Well, look around. There's the brokenness, things that aren't right in our world, not just with us as human beings, but creation itself. Creation is beautiful, but it's not what it's meant to be. There should not be floods and droughts that kill thousands of people there should not be tornadoes and hurricanes that destroy homes there should not be diseases that infect us and kill us there should not be pollution and scarcity of resources and what's the deal with mosquitoes why god and why do these groundhogs keep eating my garden But God made everything good in the beginning, including us. Now, everything is suffering and groaning. It all started with an event called the fall. Genesis chapter 3, it records how the first human beings sinned. They rebelled against God and everything broke as a result. In response to Adam and Eve's sin, God pronounced the curse. To Eve, he said that childbearing would become painful for her. And to Adam, he cursed the ground. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Humanity was subject to the curse as well as the ground from which we were taken. Creation itself is broken as a result of our sin and Adam and Eve started it but we all participate in it we all sin and fall short of the glory of God our story too is tied to the story of creation when it's redeemed when we're redeemed then it will be redeemed too our beginning was the same goodness our current reality is the same groaning and our future is the same glory We're part of this bigger story. Now, suffering causes some people to lose their faith, to turn away from God, to not believe in Him. Because how can a good God allow this? But the suffering you're facing right now is actually not evidence against God. It actually confirms the story that God tells in the Bible. The fact that our suffering feels unjust, the fact that it doesn't feel right, that we know this shouldn't be how it should be. It's evidence that we were made destined for something greater. The birth pangs are evidence that the baby is coming. The groaning is evidence that glory is coming. Until then, Paul says we hope. He repeats that word several times here. Waiting and hoping are key words. In Christian hope, it's not wishful thinking. It's a certain expectation of something good. It's trusting and waiting for something that we can't now see, but we trust that it's coming. This is the hope, he says, we've had since we first believed in Christ. We believe that we'd be resurrected like him. Paul says in verses 23 to 25, we wait eagerly for that, and we also wait with patience eagerly yet with patience it it sounds contradictory but it's not a christian faces suffering in this life with eager patient waiting we wait eagerly because we know this isn't it there should be something better we're eager to see the glory that's promised to us and yet we wait patiently because we have complete trust in god that he'll bring it about We don't need to take matters into our own hands to secure the good things that we want the way that Adam and Eve did. We can simply wait on God. And notice, our hope as Christians is anchored in God's hope. Yes, God himself hopes, but not in like a a pitiful, wishful thinking sort of way. Verse 20, it says, God subjected creation to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He subjected everything to frustration, futility in hope of glory. And when God hopes something, it's not wishful thinking. It's a certain expectation of something good. Because he's fully capable of bringing about that good. Is he not? The moment... He pronounced the curse. He already knew, was already planning how he was going to undo the curse through Jesus Christ. The glorious end of our story, it's guaranteed because God is the one who's been writing it and directing it from the beginning. You know, a story only ends up making sense if the director had the ending in mind from the beginning. If you've ever seen Star Wars Episode Nine, a terrible excuse for a movie, then you know this to be true. Star Wars Episode Nine was terrible, partly because they changed directors halfway through production. So it didn't really make sense. There were plot holes. It wasn't a good story. A story only ends up making sense if the director had the end in mind from the beginning. And your life is a story written and directed by God. Which he's weaving into the story of all of creation. He had the end in mind from the beginning. You may not know why s- certain plot points had to be in there. Why you had to go through that. You may not know how this current mess that you're in could possibly be resolved and be something good. But if you're a believer in Christ, then your story is a redemption story. Your ending is assured. And it will make sense of every plot point along the way. For now, we wait eagerly and patiently, knowing the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's awaiting us. Paul compares our suffering to the pains of childbirth. And it's fitting. The pain of childbirth, as great as it is, is not worth comparing with the joy of having your newborn handed over to you for the first time. Now, I may not be qualified to make that statement since I haven't gone through the pain. But I think my wife would agree. And I think any of the mothers in the room would agree. No matter how painful the delivery, no mother can look at their newborn baby and say, that wasn't worth it. (laughs) Right? Even, I mean, they come out looking weird and stuff, but still, she's like, oh, he's so beautiful. Right? In that moment, the pain is forgotten. The pain was great. The groaning was intense. And yet, in that moment, she knows it was all worth it. It was all worth it. That is the type of goodness that awaits us, glory that makes our suffering look small. There's a second promise we should remember as we endure suffering and wait for glory, which we see in verses 26 to 27. And it's that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Specifically, the Holy Spirit helps us to pray despite our weakness. This is what it says, verses 26 to 27. Let's read it again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. When we pray, the Spirit prays along with us, and his prayers are perfectly aligned with the will of God, the will of God the Father. So when we don't pray as we ought, the Spirit does. The perfect prayer of God lies behind every imperfect prayer of ours. So maybe that's good news for those of us who hate public prayer and, you know, those of us who don't pray good. But I think more than that, the weakness that he's talking about here that causes us to need the Spirit's help, it's our fallen condition. Our weakness is our fallen condition, which, which prevents us from praying in line with the will of God. Part of our fallen condition is our depravity. We, we have minds darkened and, and hearts twisted by sin. And so even the act of praying to God can be something that falls short of what it should be. We ask for things that we shouldn't. Things that God knows wouldn't be good for us. We don't desire what God desires. We don't think like God thinks. We don't understand what God's up to, and so we pray for things that we ought not to. But the mind and the will of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are perfectly aligned because they're one God. Another part of our fallen condition is that we live in just a shockingly broken world. There's evil in this world that's unfathomable until you look it in the eye. There are things that you'll suffer in this life that will take your breath away, leave you speechless. Times when you truly don't know what to pray. And it's in those times of weakness we can trust that the Spirit prays with us. He asks the Father for exactly what we need this second promise it's different from the other two in our passage it's focused on the present yeah you may believe yes i'm destined for glory someday you may fully believe that and yet you might not how to get through you might not know how to get through today what do i do right now god this is the promise you need when you're lost and struggling to carry on right now Sometimes we do need to gain God's perspective, see the big picture. We need to know that God is sovereign over everything. But other times we just need to know that God is with us right now. He's here. He's not some some uncaring ruler who's, who's watching things from afar and just orchestrating things from the background and cares nothing about me while I suffer. No, he's here. He's present. He's with me in it. I think this is what your brother or sister in Christ needs to hear when they're going through suffering. This is what they need to hear from you. At least what they need to hear first. When we see people hurting, a lot of times we want to tell them it'll be all right. But maybe what they need to hear first is that God is with them when it's not all right. He knows their pain. He's not indifferent to it. He's not distant from it. As Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. He's a very present help in trouble. We need to know God is powerful and God is sovereign. But when I'm suffering, I don't I don't care how powerful he is unless I know that he's with me. He's present. If you're a believer in Christ then the Holy Spirit lives in you. He's with you. He's with you. When the doctor tells you the prognosis, he's with you. When you've just gotten that phone call and you're on your knees praying, but you don't know what to pray, he's with you. When the earth gives way beneath you and you feel utterly helpless, the Spirit of God is interceding for you, praying for you, exactly the way you would pray if you perfectly understood the will of God. That's how he's praying for you. And God always answers that kind of prayer. If you believe this promise, then there's only one thing to do when you're feeling weak in the face of suffering. Pray. Pray, even when you don't know what to pray. Even when your pain tempts you to give up. Even when you don't have the words to say and your prayers feel so inadequate. Turn to God. Pray. The Spirit will help you in your weakness. The third promise to remember comes in verses 28 to 30. And it's that God works all things for our good. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified If you love god In other words, if you're a genuine believer in christ Then you can rest assured that all things work together for your good and god can make that promise because He's the one who controls all things. And so he's able to work all things for your good. In some way that that we can't possibly comprehend, God is sovereign over all things. He orchestrates every single thing that happens in this universe, even the free choices of creatures like you and me. And in some way we can't comprehend. He's, He's not complicit in evil. And yet... He can even use evil and suffering for his good purposes within his divine plan. And that's actually a very comforting truth. It means we don't have some weak God who's you know, trying his best to turn this messed up world around. And hopefully it works, but we'll see. The universe is not out of control from God's perspective. We have an utterly sovereign God. And that's the only kind of God who can make this sort of promise to you, that he can work all things for your good. This promise, I think it it takes the first promise of future glory and it, it just amplifies it even further. Not only will your suffering look small in light of eternity, but even the specifics of your suffering, God is going to use and redeem and use for your good. All things means all things. Even your sin. Even your greatest failure. Even your greatest loss. Even your darkest moment. Even the things that seem to us like pointless suffering will be used by God for good. Now, the good we desire in our hearts may not be the good that God wants to do for us. When we lose a loved one, we want them back now. When we lose a job, the good we desire for God to give us is a better job, hopefully soon. When we're suffering in singleness, the good, we hope, is that God is just preparing us for our future spouse in this life. When we're sick, we expect God to show his goodness by healing us in this life. But the good God intends for us may not be realized in this life. We're not promised riches and romance and long life in the world. But we're promised heavenly treasure that will never rust or be destroyed. We're promised love that makes the most amazing human marriage look like just a shadow of the real thing. We're promised long life and everlasting life to enjoy God And enjoy his people and enjoy his blessings. The good things we often want God to do for us, they pale in comparison to the good things he's actually going to do for us. The inheritance he's preparing for us. The joy you would get from God giving you the thing you want most in this life is a tiny fraction of the joy that you'll experience at the resurrection when you see him face to face. And then multiply that times infinity. Because that's how long you get to enjoy it. Forever. Do you see how unending glory is the only way to make sense of a good God who allows suffering? Some of us will suffer things in this life that will never be justified and never be outweighed in this life with good things. But God can use our suffering to prepare us for the immeasurable good in the age to come come that awaits us. Whatever strengthens my faith, whatever kills sin in me, whatever helps me die to the world, whatever sobers me and keeps me away from the path of destruction, whatever teaches me to number my days and helps me gain a heart of wisdom, Whatever causes me to persevere and cling to Christ till my last day, until I, I meet Him in glory, it's good. Even if it's bad. It's an infinite good. An immeasurable, incomparable good. Even if it's bad. And whatever heightens my gratitude for my salvation and my enjoyment of God is an infinite good. Because I'll get to enjoy Him forever. And the bitterness of this life will make the sweetness of heaven that much sweeter. And that joy is eternal. The greatest possible good you can experience is to be saved by Christ and then to be made like Christ. To be saved completely and then sanctified completely. And in the rest of these verses, that's precisely what Paul says God has planned for every believer He's been planning that from eternity past. Paul says God predestined us, in verse 29, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Before you even knew Jesus, he destined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to become like him. He planned for you to be part of his family and to take on the family resemblance. In heaven, you'll be the true you. All the unique goodness that God made you with, except no longer distorted and twisted by sin any longer. Not only that, God planned every step of your salvation. He planned to call you through the proclamation of the gospel. He planned to justify you through faith in Christ and his death on the cross. And he planned to glorify you when Christ comes again. And remember, he's not a weak God. He's a sovereign one. He's not a weak God who tries his best to save people and sometimes fails. No, he's a God who always accomplishes his purposes. That's why even though our glorification is not yet accomplished, what does Paul say about it? It's so guaranteed that Paul says God glorified us. He uses a verb form that describes a completed action. It's often used for things that happened in the past. To describe something that we know is still In the future, the purpose of God is so sure, it's as good as done. When God speaks it, it's a reality. When God decides it, it's a sure thing. If you're going to endure suffering, you need this promise. When you're suffering and your world seems uncertain, you need to know the certainty of God's plan for you and all that He's accomplished for you in Christ. When your suffering tells you you're alone and God doesn't care. God says something different. He says, I foreknew you. Before you knew me, before you even existed, I knew you. I know what you've been through. I know what you will go through. And I know the good things I have planned for you. Your pain will sometimes tell you it's pointless. It's futile to keep seeking God. What's the point? If he's going to keep letting me suffer. But God says, I called you according to my purpose. I have a purpose for you. I predestined you to become like Christ. I prepared a place for you and my family. And none of your suffering is wasted. I'm going to use that for your good and your joy. The suffering caused by your own sin will accuse you. It'll tell you you're guilty. You're a failure. You're a mess. How could God ever make something great out of you? But God says, "You're justified. You're not guilty." Your sin died in the death of Christ. There's no condemnation left for you. And not only that, you're glorified. One day you'll be just like Jesus. You will be beautiful, radiant, perfect, glorious. It may sound too good to be true, but it's certain. It's as good as done. So how can we endure suffering as we wait for glory? Only by remembering and clinging to these promises. When your suffering looms large, remember that your future glory will make it look small. When you don't even know what to pray, remember that the Spirit prays with you. When your suffering leaves you lost and discouraged, remember that God has a plan for you, and he's going to work all things for your good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the amazing promises in your word. Lord, I pray especially for those who are suffering right now, who are discouraged, who needed to hear this most. Lord, I pray that you would reach them with the encouragement that they need through your word and your spirit. Lord, I pray that each of us would have our vision of our future glory enlargened, that we would see the world as it really is, that the inheritance we have in Christ is so much greater than everything we suffer. Lord, I pray that in the in the moments when we're tempted to turn away from you in discouragement, Lord, that we would turn to you. Trust that the Spirit prays with us, even our imperfect prayers. God, I thank you for the encouragement of the body and the fact that we can lift one another up, that we can comfort one another with the comfort we've received from Christ. Lord, help us now as we worship together for this to be encouraging to our souls. Use it to assure us of the glory that's waiting for us. Lord, I thank you. Thank you so much for these amazing promises, Lord, to help them to just ruminate in our minds this week and make us more like Christ because of it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.